The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to From the Pulpit on the Restoration Radio Network. This show will air weekly on Thursday nights and will be a presentation of the most informative sermons, conferences, and lectures from Catholic clergy on critical topics for Roman Catholics to find their way and to hold their faith during this horrendous crisis, the modernist heresy, which permeates the Church and the world at every level. From the Pulpit is underwritten by True Restoration Press and True Restoration Media, with streaming videos and membership subscriptions available at truerestoration.org. And while a portion of the operating costs of this program are underwritten by True Restoration Press, we are truly dependent upon listener donations for the continued success of these broadcasts. Restoration radio programs, including this one, are available in the iTunes store and are syndicated on TuneIn and Stitcher. You can follow the work of True Restoration at truerestoration.blogspot.com on our Facebook page, in our recently added daily news feed, which is linked on the blog homepage. On tonight's broadcast, we will continue a series of sermons on Vatican II presented by His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. This series began on August the 8th and is airing over a five-week time span. It will take us right to the root of the problem, which, without question, has caused the near-complete destruction of everything once recognizable as the Roman Catholic Church, her institutions, her liturgy, her doctrine and her disciplines, the Second Vatican Council. If you missed any prior broadcasts in this series, you may listen to them at any time on demand at the Restoration Radio homepage by clicking the From the Pulpit series links. We will air two sermons per week in back-to-back format so that our listeners may digest and ponder the material given each week. Let us now join Bishop Sanborn as he explains the doctrinal errors of Vatican II and in the second half of the program, the heresy of Lumen Gentium. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Today I would like to speak to you about the doctrinal errors of Vatican II in general. That is, an overview. Last week we saw the many liturgical changes of Vatican II, how they were inspired by ecumenism, which is that desire to put all religions together and how they manifested a substantial departure from the Catholic notion of the Mass. This week, we begin to look at the doctrinal errors of Vatican II, since these are the most important. Liturgy and discipline depend on doctrine. They flow from doctrine. And where there is a substantial change in liturgy, you have a substantial change in doctrine. Where there is smoke, there is fire. The same is true of discipline. Where there is substantial change in discipline, it is due to a change in doctrine. And so we must look at these doctrinal changes. But before we discuss the doctrinal changes of Vatican II, we must underline a Catholic principle. If you do not understand this principle, you will not understand what the problem is with Vatican II. And this foregoing principle concerning doctrine is that the teachings of the Catholic Church are immutable. The role of the Catholic Church, which is the unique Church of Christ, is to take revelation, that is, what God has said in both tradition and sacred scripture, and to propose it to the human race in the form of dogma. And so there is the dogma of the Holy Trinity, the dogma of the real presence, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, and so forth. 
the church does not manufacture dogmas, rather it takes from the treasure chest of divine revelation truths and proposes them in a magisterial way, that is, like a teacher and in an authoritative way. Now, these dogmas are immutable for two reasons. They are immutable first, that is, changeless, first because they cannot change from God's point of view. God never changes. He cannot change his mind about something. He cannot change his mind about the Immaculate Conception or the Real Presence because he is changeless. For him to reveal himself is to reveal something that is eternal and changeless. The very eternity of God is tied to his changelessness, for that which changes is not eternal. And St. James, therefore, says in his epistle, quote, there is no change nor shadow of alteration, unquote, in God. No change nor shadow of alteration. And from the point of view of the church, the dogmas are changeless and unchangeable since the church is the infallible teacher of Christ's truth. Christ said to his apostles, he who hears you hears me. And he said to them, going therefore teach ye all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you and giving them this power to teach this and this command to teach. And he said, those who do not believe shall be condemned. Shall be condemned. Those are strong words. But in order to hold men to such strict rigor that they shall be condemned if they don't hear the teaching of the apostles, it was necessary that Christ endow his church with infallibility in teaching. For how could God justly condemn someone for not listening to the teaching of the church if that church can make an error in its teaching? If, for example, the church were to say in one year, well, you're going to go to hell if you don't believe this and you're going to go to hell if you don't believe that. And then the year later say, well, we've changed our minds. Now you go to heaven for believing that. And and if and then we'll change the others too. Now, now you're going to hell for something else and so forth. If the church changed its mind or said, well, we were wrong about this or that or the other thing, why bother having a church, first of all? What's the sense of having a church if it doesn't teach with authority and with infallibility? And secondly, how could God hold people accountable for not believing the church if the church stumbled from age to age and century to century from one error to another? God could not possibly fault me. But because he says those who do not believe shall be condemned, means that he is giving that church infallibility. And he said, I will be with you all days, even to the consummation of the world. And he also promised the assistance of the Holy Ghost, who will reveal to you all things. And this infallibility means that the church proposes doctrines concerning God, which are absolutely true. And because they're absolutely true, they cannot change. Because God doesn't change. So the dogmas of the church are unable to be changed. They are immutable, absolutely immutable. The church does, however, propose new dogmatic formulas of the same immutable dogmas in which she merely unfolds more and more the details and the depths of the same dogma. We saw in the early centuries of the church, for example, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity expressed more and more explicitly as time went on. The doctrine of the, of the Incarnation expressed more and more. But all of this was merely a greater explanation, a more detailed explanation of the same doctrine. 
it would be as if a witness were to give a more detailed explanation of an accident that he saw. What he sees is the same thing. But if he speaks about it for a long time and gives particular details, he is not in any way changing what he saw. He is simply becoming more and more explicit about what he saw. And the same is true of the church. The church has a vision of these doctrines through revelation. And usually at the occasion of a heresy where somebody is denying it, the church makes these more explicit. But never can there be change or contradiction and never has there been change or contradiction. And this is a proof of the divinity of the Catholic Church. That the Catholic Church has been a single institution with a single hierarchy, with a single authority which proceeds from Christ and the Apostles and has taught a single non-contradictory doctrine all throughout the ages, even though she has been assailed by her enemies, even though she has been betrayed by Judas's inside of her, even though there has been the failure of the clergy in many different ways from age to age, she has preserved like a sacred jewel, the deposit of faith and has proposed it from age to age with the same consistency and immutability. And that is a sign of her divinity because human beings left to themselves always will eventually fall into error. And if you look at the greatest geniuses of humanity, look at Aristotle, look at Plato, look at anyone else that you want to and, and would like to, to attach the word genius, they have all, despite the truth they have taught, fallen into error. They have all flopped in one way or another because the human intellect, infected as it is by original sin, can only achieve, even at, the, at its best, can only achieve some of the truths of God. Some. And for that matter, even some of the truths of nature. But for the church to persevere in the same truth is a sign of her divinity. If you look at the history of philosophy, human beings go from one error to the next. It is a history of human error. And it fills volumes and volumes and volumes. And it is abstract and complicated. Why? Because much of it is pages of darkness. The darkness of error which makes no sense. Just as a, a math problem that is faulty makes no sense. So also when, when reasoning is faulty it makes no sense. It is difficult to understand. It is dark to the human intellect. But the church has persevered as a single institution. And whereas great institutions such as the Roman Empire, which lasted for a thousand years, or the Venetian Republic, which lasted for 800 years, or any other human institution that seemed to be perpetual in men's eyes, even though all of those have, have collapsed and gone the way of all flesh and have died, the Catholic Church, despite her enemies, despite terrible attacks, has always perdured. And that is a sign of her divinity. Now, the changelessness of doctrine is a direct result of the Church's indefectibility, the fact that she is assisted by Christ. Since she cannot be if she is not faithful in this most fundamental aspect of fidelity, and that is to be faithful to Christ in conserving and, pre and preaching His truth. Our Lord, in the agony of the garden, prayed to His Father, Sanctifica eos in veritate, sanctify them in truth. And He will say to Pilate the next day, 
I have come to witness unto the truth, and those who are of God hear those who are of the truth hear my voice. The first fidelity of the church to Christ as his immaculate spouse is the fidelity of truth. And the church, therefore, keeps holy and immutable this deposit of truth. For how can you become holy if you believe falsehood about God? Why do you think that Moses threw the tablets at the golden calf? Because you cannot approach God in holiness if you adore a false god. Falsehood is against God. It is abominable in His sight. And that's why He threw the tablets of the Ten Commandments, the Word of God, at that idol of human making. Now here is an overview, given that foregoing principle, here is an overview of the dogmatic errors of Vatican II. And I say an overview because they are so many and in some cases so deep that we could not possibly talk about them all in a single sermon. Now remember that Vatican II, the spirit or the soul of Vatican II, what makes it to be what it is and gives it a certain life in the same way the devil has life, is a frenzy of ecumenism, a frenzy, a fever to put all religions together. And because that's so, they had to remove all those doctrines that would be an obstacle to religious unity. Now, the first doctrine to remove is the doctrine that the Catholic Church is the one true Church of Christ. And so Lumen Gentium, which is the dogmatic constitution on the Church, teaches that there is on the one hand a Church of Christ, and on the other hand there is the Catholic Church. That is a heresy. They clearly distinguish the two. The Church of Christ is a spiritual union of those who profess the Christian name. Orthodox, Anglicans, Protestants, whatever. The Catholic Church is that juridical institution under the Pope and bishops. And then they say that the Church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church. Now, you might say, well, that isn't too bad, that's true. But understand the context of what that means. The Catholics at the council got up and said, why not say the word est, that is, is. The Catholic Church is. Excuse me, the Church of Christ is the Catholic Church because that's what Pope Pius Twelfth said in his encyclical on the Church in 1943 on the mystical body of Christ. He said is, and he said it is exclusively the Catholic Church, the Church of Christ. There's no distinction. But the, the ecumenical heretics got up and said, no, it should be subsists in, because that leaves an ecumenical meaning. Now, this can all be read about in the documents concerning the Council and in the commentators of the theologians who were there that that admits of an ecumenical meaning. And the ecumenical meaning is this, that yes, the Church of Christ exists in the Catholic Church, but it also subsists in, excuse me, subsists in the Lutheran Church and the, the Presbyterian Church and every other Greek Orthodox, whatever other false religion you want to name. It says that the Church of Christ consists of all those who look with faith toward Jesus. Now, it doesn't mention the fact that you need to profess the truths of the Catholic faith, nor be subject to the Roman pontiff and the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. Yet those two things were always a 
always elements of the definition of the church and of those who belong to the church. Not all those who look with faith toward Jesus. How many could say they look with faith toward Jesus? Presbyterians, Lutherans, Methodists. It's even possible that those who labor under invincible ignorance in those religions have the virtue of faith. And they could say, I look with faith toward Jesus. I have the virtue of faith. That doesn't mean they're Catholics. That doesn't mean they belong to the Church of Christ. They belong to a false religion. They might be in good faith, but they belong to a false religion. And this teaching, therefore, contradicts the teaching that the Catholic Church is the one true Church of Christ and that the Catholic Church and it alone is the mystical body of Christ. And that is a heresy to, to deny that doctrine of the Church. Secondly, Vatican II also teaches that non-Catholic religions are a means of salvation. Now let's face it, the bottom line is to get to heaven. What does it matter about religion or church or doctrine or anything else if the vehicle you get in is going to heaven? That's really all we care about. And the Catholic Church has always taught that because it is the one true Church of Christ, that it is therefore the only means of salvation. It makes sense. She is the one spouse of Christ. She is the one custodian of the good things that he has confided to the world. But if you deny the first doctrine, then you must also deny the second. And then, then the document on ecumenism says the Holy Ghost has not hesitated to use non-Catholic religions as a means of salvation. That is explicitly heretical. It contradicts the infallible dogma of the church that outside the church there is no salvation. It is like saying Our Lady is not immaculately conceived or that Our Lord is not present in the Holy Eucharist or that there are only two persons in the Trinity. It's that bold and that heretical. Vatican II also teaches that each man has the right to religious liberty. Again, if we go back to the Catholic flow, the Catholic Church says it is the one true Church of Christ it is the unique means of salvation. Therefore, all must profess the Catholic faith. And no one has a right to be non-Catholic. For all right is based in God, and God does not give right to wrong. Otherwise, Moses should have descended from the mountain and said, oh, you're worshipping a golden calf. Well, you have a right to do that. You have religious liberty. No. The reason why he was enraged was because they don't have a right to do that. That that is objectively a blasphemy to God. It's an idolatry. Cries to heaven. And it's abomination. And so with anger, he threw the, the tablets at the golden calf and destroyed it. That is, those are the ways of God. But the way of the devil is to say, well, all men have a right to believe whatever they want. And this doctrine of religious liberty was specifically condemned by Pope Pius IX and by Pope Gregory XVI. It was condemned by those two as an insanity. It was condemned by Pope Leo XIII as being against the scriptures. And it was again condemned by St. Pius X. And if we look at what they did, it is as if they went to those documents in which those, especially that of Pius IX, in which the doctrine was condemned, and they took the words and made it now the teaching. The words are so close, if you put them side by side, that there could be no coincidence. They took what was condemned and made it now the teaching. Vatican II also teaches that the church is governed by a college of bishops of which the Pope is the head. Again, 
That doesn't sound too bad. But in fact, it's a heresy because it contradicts the teaching of the church concerning the constitution of the church. The church is not ruled by a college of bishops as if it's some sort of democracy or, or as if it has a congress at its head. The church is ruled by the Pope of Rome, the Pope, the successor of St. Peter, who holds the keys of the kingdom of God. And he's the one that makes the bishops and he's the one that breaks them. He gives them authority and he destitutes them of authority. And he has care of the whole flock. And he takes a part of the flock and he says to this bishop, you take this part and take care of it for me. It is not ruled by a college of bishops. That is to alter the divine constitution of the church, the divinely established monarchical constitution of the Catholic Church. And it is a heresy. But that's exactly what they're living now. If you wonder why, at times, you see John Paul II say something conservative and then nothing happens, it is because he wants to be a type of Queen Elizabeth with regard to the government of the church. He wants to be a figurehead that inhabits a palace and looks nice and, and says encouraging things and even says occasionally some orthodox things, some things that happen to agree with the Catholic faith. But nothing happens. A good example is how many times he condemned the altar girls. Oh, you can't have altar girls, and altar girls are out. And then he finally ends up by approving them. Now, the, the American bishops have just come up with 101 new changes for the Mass. 101 which they want approved, which they'll probably get approval for. One of them is, is an ecumenical mass, as if the new mass is not ecumenical. It's, it's 25 years old, so we would have to say it's passé. We would even have to say it's traditional now. So that has to be scrapped. And now, now a new one. And this, this, this is all part of modernism, is constant evolution and change. Just constant motion, nothing ever stays the same. It's all part of the modernist mentality. But getting back to the government of the church, he wants to become a type of Queen Elizabeth that is a figurehead monarch of the Catholic Church. And why? Go back to the ecumenical fever so that he will not be an obstacle to the reunion of Protestants and Orthodox. By that I mean Greek schismatics. <clears throat> so they have altered the constitution of the Catholic Church. And Vatican II finally teaches that the Jews are not responsible for the death of Christ. This evil document was cooked up by the falsely, by uh, Cardinal Bea, who had falsely converted from Judaism by all appearances and who received wording from the document from B'nai B'rith in New York. Went to New York and met with the officials of B'nai B'rith and received the, the wording of the document, what they wanted to see in the document. And this contradicts the gospel. This contradicts the gospel. For in the gospel we see the, the Pharisees and the Jews who had a special vocation to point out the Messiah, we see them plotting the death of Jesus. The Jews had a special vocation to point out the Messiah to the world, to say to the world, like St. John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God, behold Him who takes away the sin of the world. And he pointed his finger, it says in the Gospel, at our Lord Jesus Christ. All of Judaism was supposed to do that. All of Judaism was supposed to be like the twelve apostles. For they had the vocation to bring the Messiah to the world. They had the job. And they failed. And because they had that special vocation they now have a special guilt in the death of Christ.
and they want to shed that guilt. The effects of that guilt came upon them in Jerusalem in 70 AD when Titus, in fulfillment of the prophecy of Christ, Titus came with a tremendous Roman army and laid siege to Jerusalem and destroyed it down to its very ground and dispersed the Jews and where the conditions in inside Jerusalem from starvation and disease even horrified the Romans, the hardened Romans, according to the Jewish historian Josephus. And they have continued to pay and pay and pay for their guilt because of continued persecution and rejection because of their guilt and because of their inherent opposition to Catholic civilization. And it is the teaching, the constant teaching of the fathers and of the church in general, that they do have a special guilt. For if there is no special guilt, then there is no vocation. They cannot call themselves the chosen people if they do not accept the guilt of having rejected the Messiah. And in fact, they have lost their vocation once the curtain in the temple was split. They lost it because they, are, they lost their opportunity to point out the Messiah. These fundamental doctrinal changes are corroborated by statements by Wojtyla himself and by liturgical and disciplinary changes. And excuse me if I spend a long time on these sermons and perhaps go longer than, than I should as far as giving these sermons, but uh, this will be part of a series that is being recorded and will be able to be handed to somebody if they are interested in the Catholic faith. Uh, too often these things are done superficially and without the proper attention and without the proper documentation. This series will also serve as the basis of a little book I intend to write entitled A Catechism of Catholic Resistance to Modernism, which will be a chapter-by-chapter question-and-answer approach to all of the different uh, problems that have presented themselves and all of the questions that people have concerning what our stance is. And this will be put in a simplified way and will refer to uh, other works if people want to read more. And I hope that I will prove to you that this religion that is found in our Catholic institutions from St. Peter's Basilica down to the smallest church that this new religion is not the Catholic religion, and for that matter, it isn't even a heresy, it is an apostasy from the Catholic faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. We hope you're enjoying tonight's episode of From the Pulpit. Please be sure to visit truerestoration.org and click on the True Restoration media link to view our available streaming videos and membership subscriptions for purchase and direct download. These purchases will help us continue to bring you the best content and show guests in the Catholic world today. And now, we present the continuation of tonight's program. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Today I would like to speak to you about one of the dogmatic errors of Vatican II, Last week we saw an overview of them, but now I would like to take one of them specifically, and that is the heresy of Lumen Gentium concerning the Church. Now, by way of review, we have seen that the fundamental error of Vatican II is that of modernism, which teaches that God is in all men in a supernatural way and reveals himself to all men interiorly. Thus, everyone has a religious experience, but expresses it differently by means of different religions. And because all religions are true in this system, inasmuch as they reflect a genuine religious experience, the goal of all religions should be to amalgamate themselves into one great religion. This 
must be done by the abandonment of dogma. And this error is the error of ecumenism. Ecumenism accounts for all of the changes of Vatican II. The purpose of ecumenism is to prepare the Roman Catholic Church to be an ecumenical bride, to strip her of her sacred dogmas, her traditional liturgy and discipline, which are based on these dogmas and which manifest these dogmas. So, we saw how the liturgy was affected by ecumenism. We saw an overview of how the dogmas were affected by ecumenism. Now I want to concentrate on this one of Lumen Gentium, which is a heresy concerning the church. The stumbling block to ecumenism, obviously, is the church's teaching that the Roman Catholic Church is the one true church of Christ and that she alone is the source of eternal salvation. Now, Lumen Gentium destroyed this dogma, but destroyed it in a very subtle, clever, and skillful manner. This is the text. This is the sole Church of Christ, which in the Creed we profess to be one holy, Catholic, and apostolic which our Savior, after his resurrection, entrusted to Peter's personal care, commanding him and the other apostles to extend and rule it, and which he raised up for all ages as the pillar and mainstay of the truth. This church, constituted and organized as a society in the present world, subsists in the Catholic Church, which is governed by the successor of Peter and the bishops, and by the bishops in communion with him. Now, at face value, that does not seem too bad. It talks about the Church of Christ, and it says this church, as constituted as a society and ruled by the Pope and bishops, is, uh, subsists in the Catholic Church. But that term, subsists in, is the poison of the heresy. And I'll show you why. Pius XII said that the Church of Christ is the Roman Catholic Church. He said that in Mystici Corporis. And this word, is the Roman Catholic Church, is an obstacle to ecumenism. So it was necessary in the mind of the ecumenists to split the idea of the Church of Christ with the Catholic Church the Church of Christ being an invisible church, one that is composed of, of many, many different Christian communities and linked together by an invisible bond. The Catholic Church is an organized society. When you say subsists in, and when they say it, it means that this Church of Christ is found in the Catholic Church. The idea being, as we will see, uh, it is also found in other churches. The Anglican Church, the Greek Orthodox Church. A Jesuit by the name of Father Mucci, writing in 1988 in the well-known Roman magazine Civiltà Cattolica, said, the change of est, which means is, used by Pius XII, to subsistit, which means subsists, of Vatican II, took place for ecumenical reasons. And Father Louis Boyer, who is a well-known modernist liturgical expert who is dead now, but who wrote a lot at the time of the Council, said that the subsisted introduced by the Council, by means of the subsisted introduced by the Council, one has sought to, quote, propose again the idea of the one church, even if it is presently divided among the diverse Christian churches as if among many branches. This idea of one church divided into many was also taken up by John Paul II in Canterbury 
which we'll see later. Furthermore, Cardinal Villebrand, who is the head of the Vatican's Ecumenical Commission, held some conferences in 1987, and he said that the subsistent supersedes and corrects the est of Pius XII. Supersedes and corrects the est of Pius XII. Now, while the council was in progress, Bishop Carley, an Italian bishop, and Father Anaceto Fernandez, then Master General of the Dominicans, vigorously intervened to request the correction of Lumen Gentium by using the word est instead of subsisted in order to unequivocally affirm the Catholic faith, that the Church of Christ is the Roman Catholic Church. But the ecumenical choice prevailed. And Father Yves Congar, who, he died, but who, who is, was a, a flaming modernist, said this, quote, The problem remains if Lumen Gentium strictly and exclusively identifies the mystical body of Christ with the Catholic Church, as did Pius XII in Mystici Corporis. That's the encyclical. Can we not call it into doubt when we observe that not only is the attribute Roman missing, but also that one avoids saying that only Catholics are members of the mystical body. Thus they are telling us in the Council that the Church of Christ and of the Apostles subsisted in, that is, subsists in, is found in the Catholic Church. There is consequently no strict identification that is exclusive between the Church of Christ and the Roman Church. Vatican II admits fundamentally that non-Catholic Christians are members of the mystical body and are not merely ordered to it. End of quote. You could not get a more explicit declaration of the heresy. And he was one of the the quote-unquote great minds of Vatican II who contributed to these documents and who helped to author them. And what this means is that the mystical body of Christ or the Church of Christ has a greater extension than the Roman Catholic Church, that those two are two different things. And that is a heresy. Now, the Novus Ordo conservative comes along and says, well, we can save Vatican II because you can interpret that in an orthodox way. You can give a Catholic meaning to subsisted in. And we already see that the Novus Ordo conservative is bothered by it. Already he's troubled by the fact that this council has said something which gives rise to error. Because they, they jump hoops in order to preserve the orthodoxy of that council. For they know in their hearts that if they admit that the council has taught error, that they must admit that the authority which promulgated it is not the true authority of our Lord Jesus Christ and that Paul VI and John Paul II are false popes. They know that in their hearts. But that is not a legitimate thing to say, that, well, I can give a, a good interpretation to it. Because the only authentic interpretation to a council document or any teaching of the church is the interpretation that the church herself gives to it. The church, just as it is the, the authority concerning sacred scripture, is also the authority concerning her own teaching. So we have to look to Paul VI, we have to look to the council itself, we have to look to John Paul II to see what they mean. For when you say something, you mean something. You might say something which is ambiguous and gives rise to double meaning, but you are not intending two meanings. The council is, is meaning a specific single thing when it says subsisted in. It is not trying to say two different things because it is impossible to mean two different things. 
When you speak, you mean a single thing. So what is this single thing that the council intends? Well, already in Lumen Gentium we find that it says, many elements of sanctification and of truth are found outside its visible confines, that is, outside the Catholic Church. Since these are gifts proper to the Church of Christ, they are forces impelling towards Catholic unity. Now notice, the elements of sanctification are found outside of the Catholic Church. They are gifts proper to the Church of Christ. And therefore, they impel towards Catholic unity. So that means that these non-Catholic religions, which have these elements of sanctification, are part of the Church of Christ because these are gifts proper to the Church of Christ. Lumen John Paul II in Canterbury said, The Church of our time is the church which participates in a particular manner in the prayer of Christ for unity. The promise of Christ fills us with confidence in the power with which the Holy Spirit will heal every division introduced into the church in the course of the centuries since Pentecost. And you see his vision of the church from that. The Holy Spirit will heal every division introduced into the church in the course of the centuries since Pentecost. So at Pentecost, there was one big Christian church. And now divisions have have rent this church asunder over time. That means that the Roman Catholic Church, in his view, is not the church of Pentecost, but is one of these divisions, one of these sects, into which the church has divided, just like the Greek Orthodox and the Anglicans and everything else. And the Holy Spirit, as he says, will heal all this division. He sees the Catholic Church just as one of many different Christian churches. That's a heresy. For we say in the Creed, one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we believe in the unity of the church, And it is a dogma of our faith that the church is one. It is not divided. Christ prayed for the unity of the church to his Father. And therefore, the church has always been one. One in dogma, one in government, one in liturgy, one in in discipline. John Paul II also said, commenting on Assisi, that awful meeting that was had where they worshipped the great thumb and, and in which the Buddha was incensed on the altar of God by a very strange sounding Buddhist priest wielding, wielding incense. Commenting on that, that abomination to God meeting, he said, Such a day seemed to express in a visible manner the hidden but radical unity which the Word, meaning Christ, has established among men and women of this world. Hidden but radical unity. The fact of having come together at Assisi is like a sign of the profound unity of those who seek spiritual values in religion. The Council has made a connection between the identity of the Church and the unity of the human race. So again we see his mind that the Church is essentially the whole human race. For it all has this profound unity because everyone has a religious experience. Everyone comes to Assisi and expresses his idea of religion There is a profound and radical unity which the Word, meaning Christ, has established among the men and women of this world. They are all united by this sense of religion. This is exactly the the doctrine of the modernists. And the church, the council, made a connection between the identity of the church 
and the unity of the human race. John Paul II also said this, Religious differences reveal themselves as pertaining to another order. If the order of unity is divine, the religious differences are a human doing and must be overcome in the process towards the realization of the grandiose design of unity which presides over creation. And that means, he's saying, that the order of unity is divine and religious differences are of human doing. Now, why are there religious differences? Because the Roman Catholic Church condemned the doctrines of Martin Luther and excommunicated him. That made a, 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 a rupture in the Church of Christ. The Roman Catholic Church excommunicated the Greek Orthodox when they refused to submit to the authority of Rome. There's a rupture in the Church of Christ and so forth. That means that when the church defends the teaching authority of the church and the infallibility of the Pope and the authority of the Pope, she is doing a human thing only. That's not part of the fulfillment of her divine command to protect the doctrine of the church, to teach all nations, but she is doing only a human thing. It's like a squabble. It's because human beings descend into little pettiness and all this happens. Just see what he's saying there. That the religious differences are a human doing. Again, go back to Moses coming down and seeing the people worshipping the golden calf. And he gets mad. And he throws the tablets at the golden calf. Is that a human doing? Is that only because... He got upset. Should he regret that and say, you have a right to worship the golden calf? No, that was an expression of divine retribution against an abomination to God. It is possible that men, he continues, not be conscious of their radical unity of origin and of their insertion in the very same divine plan. Translation, they may not be conscious that God is in them and that they are attached to Christ. But despite such divisions, despite such divisions, they are included in the grand and single design of God in Jesus Christ, who united himself in a certain way with every man, even if he is not conscious of it. So the, the snake worshiper in Africa, the voodoo snake worshiper, the snake worshiper high priest, who is not conscious of Jesus Christ and that, that he is united to Jesus Christ, even though he's not conscious of that, nevertheless, he is included, he is included in this great and single design of God. And that's why he goes to them and to the shock of all, says words of praise concerning voodooism, inasmuch as voodooism is a sign of religious activity. The worshipping of snakes is a sign of religious activity. It is this religious sense that is coming out in man. And he goes and has himself signed with cow dung on his forehead and drinks uh, potions in Polynesia for the same reason, and that is that all of this is the religious sense in man coming out all of mankind is united by Christ to himself. And it is the purpose of the church to go around and remind people of this and to show the great unity of mankind. John Paul II also says, to this Catholic unity of the people of God, all men are called. To this unity belong in diverse forms the Catholic faithful and all those who look with faith towards Christ and finally, all men without exception. All right, so again, to this, Catholic, to this Catholic unity of people, of the people of God, all men are called. To this unity, this Catholic unity, belong in diverse forms the Catholic faithful and those who look with faith towards Christ, that's the Protestants and the Greek Orthodox, and finally, all men without exception. Lumen Gentium, 
says also all those who look with faith with faith towards Jesus God has gathered together and established as the church so that means that it is no longer necessary as it was before the council to be baptized with water to have supernatural faith to submit to the legitimate pastors and particularly to the Roman pontiff it is and not to be excommunicated or schismatic those things are all dispensed with because those were all conditions before the council of belonging to the church but all you need now is to look with faith towards Jesus it sounds like the words of a protestant minister nevertheless he who looks with faith toward Jesus but who does not believe in the Immaculate Conception or in the dogma of the infallibility of the Pope is still a part of the Church of Christ which is larger than the Catholic Church. That is, it subsists in her but is not exclusively the Catholic Church. This is all a heresy. And beyond heresy, it is apostasy. And Pope Pius XI condemned this notion. He said, They, meaning the ecumenical heretics, deem, in fact, that the unity of faith and government, which is one of the marks of the one true Church of Christ, has never existed up to now and today does not exist. That is a direct condemnation of that idea that since Pentecost, Christianity has all split up. And so they are, John Paul II is saying nothing new, he comes under the condemnation of Pope Pius XI in 1928. And Pope Pius XII said in Mystici Corporis, which in 1943, which is in his encyclical concerning the Church and the mystical body of Christ, he said, they wander away from divine truth, those who imagine the Church as if one could neither find it nor see it, as if it were a spiritual thing through which Many communities of Christians, although separated by faith, would be nevertheless joined together by an invisible bond. That's practically word for word what John Paul II preaches. That's the whole idea of Lumen Gentium, that the Church of Christ is an invisible thing. It is held together only by invisible bonds and many communities of Christians although separated by faith, are joined together by this invisible bond. It could not be more explicit. This is the teaching of the church that Pope Pius XII gives us. And that means that John Paul II is a heretic. And he preaches heresy to us because he contradicts the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Pope Pius XII in the same encyclical says that the mystical body is the visible and hierarchical Catholic Church and that only those who are baptized with water are part of the Catholic Church and that, on the other hand, excluded are the excommunicated who labor under the sentence of being avoided as well as apostates, heretics and schismatics. They are excluded, he says. Those baptized with baptism of desire or blood belong to the soul of the church, but not to the body of the church. And he also said in that wonderful document, if we would define and describe this true church of Jesus Christ, which is, which is the one holy, Catholic, apostolic, Roman church, we shall find nothing more noble, more sublime, or more divine than the expression, the mystical body of Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed, but more importantly, have found informative and beneficial this week's presentation of From the Pulpit. We will be on air to continue with the fourth part of this series one week from this evening at the same time and will continue to allow Bishop Sanborn to eloquently and forcefully explain to us the great break from Catholicism that was and is the Second Vatican Council. For more information on the work of Bishop Sanborn and of the Most Holy Trinity Seminary, you may write to him at the following. The Most Reverend Donald J. Sanborn, 
1000 Spring Lake Highway, Brooksville, Florida, 34602. Donations to the seminary are always welcome, needed, and appreciated. We at Restoration Radio would ask that if you found this show to be informative, beneficial, or in any way helpful to you and to your faith, that you would please consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small or large it may be. You can do so by going to the truerestoration.org homepage and clicking the PayPal Donate button at the bottom of the page. To those of you who have donated, a heartfelt thank you for your kindness and your generosity. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to leave us a message on our Twitter handle, at True Restoration, or you can contact us directly via email at mail at truerestoration.org. Until next time, keep the faith. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.